A Night in the Lonesome October, October 31st. And so the day arrived, cloudy and with a small wind out of the north. I told myself that I was not nervous, that as an old hand at this, there were no jitters of anticipation, rushes of anxiety, waves of pure fear. But I had gone down to the basement to begin my rounds when I realized that there were no rounds to make. And I found myself returning to check our assembly of ingredients and tools over and over again. Finally, I went out and visited Larry's place. He was gone from his grove, and the house seemed empty. I went looking for Greymalk, and when we met, we took a walk together. We hiked for a long time in silence before she said, You and Jack will be the only closers there. It looks that way, I said. I'm sorry. That's okay. Jill and I will be going to a meeting at the vicarage this afternoon. Morris and McCab will be there too. Oh, strategy session. I guess so. We climbed to Dog's Nest and looked around. An altar-like raised area of boulders had been built up before the big stone. Heavy boards lay across it. Some kindling for the bane fire was already stacked farther off. Right there, she said. Yes. We're going to protest the sacrifice part. Good. You think Larry will be able to do what he plans? I don't know. We climbed down a different way than we'd gone up, discovering some fresh, misshapen footprints. I wonder what'll become of the big fellow now, she said. I feel sorry for him. That night he picked me up, he didn't mean to hurt me. I could tell. Another lost one, I said. Yes. Sad. We walked again in silence, then... I want to stand near you in the ark, she said. I believe the vicar will be at the left end with Morris and McCab next to him. Tekla and Nightwind with them, then Jill. I will stand to her right. I will assume a position three paces forward. That would put you and Jack beside us. Oh? Yes, I've been working for this arrangement. You must be to my right and slightly back, that is, to Jack's left. Why? Because something bad may happen if you stand to his right. How do you know this? My small wisdom. I thought about it. The old cat in the dream world was obviously on her side, and she was an opener. Therefore, he could be setting me up for something. However, his remarks concerning the elders had almost seemed disparaging, and he had seemed kindly disposed toward me. Reason stopped here. I knew that I had to trust my feelings. I'll do it. When we neared our area, I said, I'm going to walk over again to see whether Larry's back. Want to come with? No. That meeting. Oh, all right. Well, it's been good. Yes. I never knew a dog this well before. Same with cats and me. I'll see you later then. Yes. She headed home. I searched all around Larry's place again, but there was no sign of his return. On my way home, I heard my name hissed from a clump of weeds. Shh.
Snuffle boy, good to see you. I was on my way over, saved me a trip. Quickline, what have you been up to? Hanging out in that orchard, eating the hard stuff, he said. Just stopped by for a quick one on the way over. Why were you come to see me? Learned something wanted you to know. What? I asked. I picked up a bad habit from Rastov, I guess. Look at me. I feel like I'm shedding my skin. You're not. I know, but I really liked him. When I left you, I headed for the orchard and just started eating the old fermented ones. It was snug with him. I felt like somebody needed me. The fruit's almost gone now. I'll come around. I'll be all right, but I'll miss him. He was a good man. The vicar got him. That's what Nightman told me. Wanted to narrow the field. That's why the Count disposed of Owen. To send the vicar a message. You'll get the vicar, won't you? Quick. I think you've had too much. Owen was killed after the Count was staked. Clever, isn't he? That's what I was coming to tell you about. He fooled us. He's still around. What? How? When I reached the peak of my indulgence the other night, he replied, I suddenly felt terribly lonely. I didn't want to be alone. So I went looking for someone. Something. Lights. Movement. Sounds. I went over to the gypsy camp, which was perfect. I curled up beneath the wagon, planning to spend the night there and sleep it off. But I overheard parts of a conversation from the wagon, which led me to make my way up between its floorboards. I had chosen the wagon, and a pair of guards were in it. Sometimes they'd speak in their own tongue, sometimes in English. The younger one wanted the practice. I spent the night in there instead of below, but I learned the story. I even found an opening that gave me a view of the casket. He's with the gypsies? Yes. They guard him by day as he sleeps, guard the casket at night when he's away. So he'd faked it, I said dressed the skeleton we'd found in his garments, put the stake into it himself. Yes, the crumbly skeleton that was already there. And that's why the ring wasn't on it. Yes, and he was safe in that too. Anybody finding the remains would assume that the staker had taken it. I felt a chill. Quick, did he? He did make this arrangement after the death of the moon, didn't he? Yes, your calculations would be unaffected. Good, but this I don't understand. The Count killed Owen because the Vicar killed Rastov. Owen was an opener. Does that reflect a particular sympathy on the part of the Count? Or was he simply out to check the Vicar and keep the violence from spreading? I don't know. Nothing was said on the matter. I growled softly. This is a complicated one, I said. Agreed. 
Now you know everything I do. Thanks. Want to come with me? No, I'm really out of the game. Good luck. Luck, quick. I heard him slither off. It rained a little that afternoon and stopped shortly after sunset. I went outside to look for the moon and Bubo came with me. The clouds still veiled her, however, and all we could see was the big area of brightness she shed in the east. The wind blew chill. So this is it, Bubo said. By morning it will all be decided. Yes. I wish I could have been playing all along. I wish on the moon, I said. It may be true. You have been playing, in a way. You've traded information. You've watched things develop. Same as the rest of us. Yes, but I didn't really do important things like the rest of you. It's mainly the little things, all added up, that give us the final picture that make the difference. I suppose so, he said. Yes, it was fun. Do you think... Could I possibly come with? I'd like to see it happen, however it goes. I'm sorry, I said. We couldn't be responsible for a civilian, too. I think it's going to be a rough one. I understand, he replied. I guessed you'd say that, but I had to ask. I left him there after a time, watching the sky. The moon was still hidden. And so... We left before midnight, of course, Jack and I, he in a warm coat and carrying a satchel containing the equipment. Under his other arm, he bore a few small logs for the fire. We left without bothering to lock the door. The sky was beginning to clear overhead, though the moon was still masked. There was sufficient light just from its glow-through, however, to show our way clearly. There was a chill, damp breeze at our backs. Soon, Dog's Nest was before us and Jack decided we should circle it and mount its eastern slope. We did that, and as we came in sight of the top, a small glow was already apparent off in the circle toward the stone with the inscription. Moving nearer, we saw that Vicar Roberts and Morris and McCab were tending a small fire they had obviously just gotten going, nursing it to achieve greater compass. The vicar's ear was unbandaged now, and a light showed through, its two, high per- showed through two high perforations in it, the heap of kindling was much larger than when Greymalk and I had been by earlier. The Bane Fire is a necessary part of our business. It goes all the way back into the misty vastness of our practices. Both sides require it, so in this sense, it is a neutral instrument. After midnight, it comes to burn in more than one world, and we, we may add to it those things which enhance our personal strengths and serve our ends. It attracts otherworldly beings sympathetic to both sides, as well as neutral spirits who may be swayed by the course of the action. Voices and sights may pass through it, and it serves as a secondary supportive point of manifestation to whatever the opening or closing object may be. Customarily, we all bring something to feed it, and it interacts with all of us throughout the ritual. I had urinated on one of our sticks, for example, several days earlier. There are times when players have been attacked by its flames, and I can recall an instance where one was defended by a sudden wall of fire it issued. It is also good for disposing of evidence. It comes in handy on particularly cold nights, too. Good evening, Jack said as we approached, and he added his contribution to the woodpile. Good evening, Jack, the vicar said, 
and Morris and McCab nodded. Lynette lay on her back upon the altar, head turned in our direction, eyes closed, breathing slow. Well, drugged, of course. She had on a long white garment, and her dark hair hung loose. I looked away. Obviously, the protest had been overridden. I sniffed the air. No sign of Jill or Greymalk yet. The fire bloomed more brightly. Jack set his bag down and moved to help with it. I decided on a quick patrol of the area, and I made a big circuit. There was nothing unusual to be found. I went and stared at the huge stone. Just then, the edge of the moon appeared from behind the clouds. Its light fell upon it. The markings had become visible again, dark upon the illuminated surface. I went and sat by Jack's satchel. The vicar had on a dark cloak, which made a swishing sound as he moved. It did not conceal the fact that he was a short, slightly fat man, and it neither added to nor detracted from his appearance of menace. That was all in his face, with its intense expression of controlled mania. The moon was doubled in his glasses. Under their joint ministrations, the Banefire grew to a respectable size. The vicar was the first to toss something into it, a small parcel which crackled and flared bluely. I took a sniff. It involved herbs I'd encountered before. Morris added two parcels, which I could tell involved bones. Jack added a very small one, which produced a green flash. I tossed in one of my own, along with the piston stick. The moon slid completely free of the clouds. The vicar went and stared at the inscription, not even glancing at his stepdaughter. Then he backed away, turned to his left, took several paces, halted, turned back toward the stone. He adjusted his position slightly, then scuffed at the ground with his boot heel. I will position myself here, he stated, glancing at Jack. I have no objection, Jack said. Your associates will be to your right, I presume. That was what I had in mind. Morris here, Macab to his right. Then Jill, he said, gesturing. Jack nodded, just as a dark shape swept past the face of the moon. Moments later, night wind dropped out of the sky, coming to rest atop the woodpile. Hello, Snuff, he observed. Care to switch? No thanks. Yourself? He did one of those unusual rotations of his head. I think not, especially when we outnumber you in all respects. Shortly, Tekla swept in with a caw, landing upon the vicar's left shoulder. Greetings, Nightwind, she said. A good game to you, sister. She looked at me and looked away. She said nothing. Neither did I. Everyone added more kindling and more ingredients to the fire. Finally, a pair of fairly large logs were set upon it. Many colored flames played about them, and soon the logs darkened and the fires danced upon their surfaces. A mixture of odors reached me as powders, bones, herbs, fleshy samples of anatomy, both human and other, were added. A few vials of liquid were also dumped upon it to smolder and produce heavy, crawling ropes of smoke to flare brightly, briefly. Within the crackling, I seemed to hear a subliminal whispering begin. I heard Jill's footsteps mounting the northern slope long before she appeared. When she did, she was hard to distinguish against the night for several moments, as she had on a hooded black cloak over a long black dress. 
She looked taller, more slim, and she carried Greymalk, though she set her down immediately when she achieved the level area. Good evening, she, she said in general. All four men responded. Hi, Snuff, Greymalk said, coming up beside me. It's a good fire already. Yes. As you can see, you were overridden. Did you find Larry? No. Oh, my. There is a backup plan, I said, and Nightwind came by just then to greet Greymalk. I felt a strong desire to howl at the moon. It was such a howlable moon. But I restrained myself. The smell of incense reached me. Jill had just begun casting parcels into the bane fire. The moon moved nearer to mid-heaven. How will we know when it is time to begin? Greymalk asked me. When we can talk with the people. Of course. How's your back? It's all right now. You look fit. I'm fine. We watched the fire for a time. Another log was added and more packets. The smells became a sweetly seductive bouquet. The flames leaped higher now, changing colors regularly, flickering in the wind. Sharp, tinkling, musical sounds came sporadically from their midst, and the sounds of voices rose into and out of audibility. Looking away from it, my gaze was attracted by a new light source. The inscription was beginning to glow. Overhead, the moon had reached mid-heaven. Jack, can you hear me? I called. Loud and clear, Snuff. Well met, my moonlight. What's on your mind? Just checking the time, I said. Suddenly, Nightwind was talking to Morris McCab, Tecla, to the vicar. I guess it's time, Greymalk said, to take our places. It is, I replied. She went off to collect Jill, who was tossing a final packet into the fire. The air was distorted above its colored flames now, as if it were burning in more than one place simultaneously, and in the shimmering area just about it, one could catch glimpses of some of those other places. From somewhere to the north, I heard the howl of a wolf. The vicar went and stood at the spot he had indicated. Morris and McCab moved to take up their positions to his right. Nightwind stood atop a rock between them. Then Jill moved to stand beside McCab. Greymalk next to her, but three cat paces forward. I went and stood near her, Jack to my right. The line was bowed, out away from the big stone, with Jack and the vicar across from each other. Lynette dozed on the altar about ten feet in front of me. From somewhere within his cloak, the vicar removed the pentacle bowl, which he placed on the ground before him. Then he withdrew the Al-Hazred icon, which he propped against a rock to his left, facing the glowing stone. Nightwind moved to a new position back behind the pentacle. The openers always begin things, as the closer's work is purely reactive. Jack's satchel, to his right, was already open from the removal of various ingredients for the bane fire, but he leaned and spread its mouth fully for easy access. McCab knelt and spread a piece of white cloth upon the ground before him, As it was windy, he weighted its corners with small stones. Then, from an ornate sheath which hung from his belt beneath his jacket, he drew a long, thin blade which looked to me like a sacrificial knife, and he placed this upon the cloth, point toward the altar. Then the moon went out. 
We all looked upward as a dark shape covered it, descending, rushing toward us. Morris shrieked shrilly as it fell, changing shape as if dark veils swam about it. And then the moon shone again, and the piece of midnight sky which had fallen came to earth beside Jack. And I saw that vision-twisting transformation of which Greymalk had spoken. Here, there, a twist, a swirl, a dark bending, and the Count stood at Jack's side, smiling a totally evil smile. He laid his left hand, the dark ring visible upon it, upon Jack's right shoulder. I stand with him, he said, to close you out. Vicar Roberts stared at him and licked his lips. I wouldn't think one of your sort more inclined to awe of you in this matter, the vicar stated. I like the world just the way it is, said the Count. Pray, let us begin. The vicar nodded. We shall, he said, to its proper conclusion, with the gate thrown wide. The Count tossed a twig and a small parcel into the flames. The fire moved in its colorful dance, crackling and chiming, burning a hole in the night through which the voices, now chanting, emerged. Shadows constantly moved past us, over the altar and across the face of the stone. I heard the howl again, much nearer. I looked at the vicar and saw him flinch, but he straightened and performed an opening gesture. He spoke a word of power, deeply, slowly. It hung in the air and resonated afterwards. The inscription on the stone began to glow a little more brightly, and now, very faintly, I could discern the formation of the door-like rectangle come to frame it, that configuration which earlier had sucked Greymalk and me through to our dream world adventure. The vicar repeated the word, and the rectangle came clear. Within the chanting I could now hear faintly, Yashub Nigaroth, being repeated as if in response. Ahead of me, Greymalk had risen to her feet and was standing very stiffly. The vicar turned then, rather than proceeding to the next phase, and moved slowly to the cloth on which the sacrificial blade rested. To his rear, I noted that the Al-Hazred icon had also begun to glow. He knelt and raised the blade with both hands, bringing it to his lips and kissing it. Then he rose and turned toward the altar, Tekla still upon his shoulder. And there came a movement from my right beyond Jack and the Count. Another dark shape was moving to join us. The vicar had taken but a single step ahead when a great gray wolf moved into the firelight and rushed past him toward the altar. Larry Talbot had arrived, apparently in reasonable control of his facilities. He seized hold of the girl's left shoulder with his teeth and dragged her down from the altar. With that rapid backing motion I had seen him employ before, he dragged her quickly before us toward the north, whence he had come to my right. The report of a gunshot filled the air and Larry staggered, a dark blot appearing and spreading high upon his left shoulder. The vicar held a smoking revolver pointed in his direction. Larry continued moving almost immediately, however, and the vicar fired again. This time there was blood on the top of Larry's head, and he uttered a moaning sound as his jaws fell open and Lynette dropped to the ground. Larry slumped forward then, and the shiftings of firelight and shadow swam over him. The chanting continued, Yashub Nigarath, against the strange music. The vicar pulled the trigger again. There followed a clicking sound from the pistol, but no discharge. 
Immediately he drew it near and worked the hammer. Suddenly, as he released it, there was a sharp report, and the round kicked up dirt near the south end of the altar. The vicar hurled the weapon to the ground, perhaps having cast only three rounds. Homemade bullets. Get her back on the altar, the vicar ordered. Morris McCabe immediately departed their positions and moved toward the supine girl. Larry's sides were still heaving heavily, and his eyes were closed. There was a lot more blood on his head, neck, shoulder now. Stop, the Count said. Players are forbidden to move a sacrifice once the ceremony is in progress. The vicar stared at him. Morris McCabe halted, looking back and forth from the vicar to the Count. I never heard of such a restriction, the vicar said. It is a part of the tradition, Jack stated. There must always be a small, even if only symbolic, exit open to a sacrifice in this. They may go as far as they can. They may be stopped. The place where they fall becomes the new altar. Do otherwise and you destroy the pattern we have created. The results could be disastrous. The vicar pondered for a moment, then said, I don't believe you. You're outnumbered. It's a closer's bluff to make things more awkward for me. Morris, McCab, put her back. The Count stepped forward as they advanced. In a case such as this, he said, the opposing parties are permitted to resist the desecration. I heard heavy, clumping footsteps in the distance, but they seemed to be passing the hill rather than approaching it. Morris and McCabe had hesitated, but then they moved forward, reaching for Lynette. The Count flowed forward. No single limb seemed disturbed, but suddenly he was there beside them. Then he raised his arms out to the sides, his cloak dependent therefrom, and he moved them forward, completely engulfing the men within its folds. He stood thus for only an instant, arms across his chest, before a succession of snapping sounds could be heard. He opened his arms, and they fell to the earth to lie at odd angles, blood emerging from their ears, noses, and mouths. Their eyes were wide. They did not breathe. You dare, the vicar cried. You dare to touch my people. The count turned his head slowly, raising his arms again. You presume, he said, to address me so. He flowed toward the vicar, but much more slowly. The music came clearer and clearer, the chanting louder, the inscription brighter, and as he moved I beheld a silent form in the shadows to my right whose presence had first reached me in the form of his scent, which I recognized from an encounter in the wood by moonlight. He approached soundlessly, the stranger wolf. The vicar's hand snaked out from beneath his cloak, casting something toward the count. Immediately the, flow, the flowing ceased and the count stiffened. In the meantime, shielded from the victor's view, vicar's view by the Count's body, the stranger wolf entered the firelight, took hold of Lynette's shoulder, and continued what Larry had begun, dragging her back into the darkness. The Count was suddenly less than graceful. He swayed. He took an awkward step toward the vicar, whose hand dipped beneath his own cloak to emerge and repeat whatever he had done. What is it? The Count asked, reeling toward the vicar, who retreated before him. Then the Count fell. Dirt from one of your own caskets, the vicar replied, mixed with pieces of my church, church's altar stone relic, left over from more papish times, finger bone of St. Hilarion, according to the records. 
You require your consecrated soil. But over-consecration is like the difference between a therapeutic and a debilitating dose of strychnine. Do you not agree? The Count muttered a reply in a foreign language as the wolf disappeared with Lynette, and I realized that from all his talks with Larry, plus his knowledge of drugs and the samples he had obtained, he had succeeded several days ago in developing his own ideal dosage, and I had just witnessed the great detective's greatest disguise yet. I howled a, well done, into the night. Later, a, good luck, came back to me. The inscription glowed brightly, brilliantly now. Whether the deaths of Morris and McCabe had contributed to this was hard to tell. The vicar looked up and saw that Lynette was gone. He glared at Jill. You should have told me, he said. I didn't notice till now, she replied. Neither did I, said Nightwind. The vicar picked up the sacrificial knife, which he had dropped, moved back into his position, and drove the blade into the ground at his feet. He straightened then, repeating the word of power, and said another. Immediately his face became the snouted, tusked visage of a boar with a shredded ear. This lasted for perhaps a minute before Larry's eyes opened. He turned his head, saw that Lynette was gone, looked immediately to the altar, saw she was not there either. He tried to rise, failed. I wondered how serious his condition was. True, there was a lot of blood, but head wounds are often that way. Even a silver bullet still has to hit something major. Larry tried to crawl forward, succeeded in moving perhaps half a foot, paused, and panted. The vicar spoke another word. Greymalk was suddenly striped like a small tiger. This, too, passed quickly. Tekela was starting to look like a vulture. Suddenly Jill was an ancient hag, bent far forward, hooked nose almost touching her jutting chin, strands of white hair hanging about her face. I glanced at Jack and saw that he suddenly wore the shaggy head of a great brown bear, yellow eyes staring forward, saliva running from the corners of his mouth. Looking downward, I saw that my fur was blood-red and moist, and I felt as if horns jutted from my brow. I had no idea what I might resemble, but Greymalk drew back in alarm. The boar spoke again, and the word rang like a bell in the chill air. The count was suddenly a skeleton wrapped in black. Something unseen passed high overhead, laughing like a demented child. Pale mushrooms sprang up all about us, and a shifting of breezes brought me sulfurous scents from the fire. A green liquid flowed outward from that blaze, spreading in bubbling streams. The chanting now seemed to contain all of our names. Macab had become a woman whose painted face began to peel off in long strips. Beside him, Morris was now an ape, his long hairy arms reaching to the ground, and he leaned to rest upon his knuckles. His mouth was opened wide, showing an enormous expanse of teeth and gums. Larry was now a bleeding man sprawled upon the ground. The air before us shimmered and became a mirror, giving this entire prospect back to us. Then our reflected, he reflected heads detached themselves and drifted leftwards. It was a strange feeling passing out of one and into another, for I seemed unmoved, though I felt the sudden weight of the bear head, saw the hogs drift by to settle upon Jack's shoulders. Greymalk suddenly wore an overlarge one-horned demonic, Jill a small striped cat's head, and so on along our crescent. Then the body shifted to the right, and I was a cat with a bear's head, lying flat because of its weight, my heart thudding like a steam engine. Jack had become a boar-headed demon. Again the laughter rang from overhead. 
If I were not my body or my head, what was I? Sprawled there amid the mushrooms and the stench, another wave of chanting rolling in my ears. Illusion, it must all be illusion, mustn't it? I never knew before, and I still didn't know. The mushrooms blackened, shriveled, and fell when the hot green flow reached them. Our images in the mirror wavered, became splashes of our dominant colors, flowed together. I looked downward again, but everything was hazy. Upward, then, at some half-noted change. The moon had gone blood-red and was dripping upon us. A shooting star cut past it. Another. Another. Soon multitudes of them rained down the heavens. The mirror cracked, and Jack and I stood alone at our end. Our forms returned to us as a great gust of wind out of the north blew away the haze. The others came clear also, restored, in their piece of reflection. The starfall lessened. The moon grew pink, then turned back to butter and ivory. I sighed and held my place, felt Greymalk's gaze pass over me. The green tendrils from the fire began to congeal, lava-like. For a moment I seemed to hear a collection of animal sounds from within the flames. Baas, knickers, whinnies, whimpers, a sharp barking, several varieties of howling, the coughing of a giant cat, a croaking, a mewling cry. There followed a stillness, save for the fire's own crackling and snapping. I felt a familiar tingling in the air. The time had come for the opening. I glanced at Jack and could tell that he felt it too. Larry dragged himself another foot forward. I was looking at the vicar as he spoke the final word. I saw the Count's left hand twitch, but apparently the vicar did too, and he stooped and raised the pentacle. Something dark fled forth from the Count's ring, but the vicar caught it in the pentacle bowl, and it was reflected off into the night. It was probably too late for killing the man anyway, for the opening was definitely beginning. The vicar stooped again, raised the icon, and placed it upon the Count's chest. The ring did not flare again. All in all, as I regarded both Larry and the Count, I was forced to a sort of grudging respect for the fellow. He was much better at his business than I'd have guessed. Jill, he called out. Use the wand now. Jill reached inside her cloak, produced the wand, raised it. Oddly, the growing brightness of the stone halted for a moment. Jack had his wand out in an instant, raising it and training it upon the same target. I heard the heavy footsteps again, this time approaching us. The rectangle began to brighten once more, and a great depth occurred within it, swimming with colored, colored lights. The cries from the banefire grew louder and louder. Yah! Shubnugarath! Hail to the black goat! The music also increased in intensity, and the moon blazed like a beacon overhead. Larry began dragging himself farther along. The experiment man came into view off to the right, heading toward us. I glanced at Jack. Beads of perspiration had formed upon his brow. I could tell that he was pouring his will and spirit into the wand, but the opening continued. The experiment man lumbered up to us. Pretty, kitty, he said, pausing in front of Jack, which might have killed anyone else, but he already smelled of death and seemed aware of nothing untoward. Suddenly the opening was arrested. The gateway lost some of its depth. The experiment man stooped and quickly snatched up Greymalk. Pretty, kitty, he repeated. Then he turned and walked away in the direction whence he had come. Put me down, she cried. I can't leave now. He sat down just beyond the firelight and commenced petting her. Larry continued his crawl, steady now. Depth returned to the gateway. 
I thought I saw a tentacle stir within it. Then something large and amorphous seemed to be drifting our way. This, this isn't working well, I heard a small voice say. I sought its source. Bubo's head had emerged from the left side pocket of Jack's coat. Bubo, what are you doing here? I asked. I had to see it, he said, to learn whether what I'd done was right. I'm not too sure now. Yes, it was a tentacle extended from the dark approaching mass, reaching for the gateway. What do you mean? I asked. I'm a pack rat, he said. I thought you were outnumbered and outgunned, and I wanted your side to win. So I did the only thing I know how. What? I asked, already beginning to guess. The dark mass was much nearer, and I smelled a deep reptilian musk. The experiment man had put down Greymalk and risen. He was approaching us again. Larry had moved much farther to my left. A tentacle emerged from the gateway, groped about, located Morris's right foot, wrapped about it, dragged him back inside. A moment later, it returned from a cab. Slurping sounds followed. I'd fixed it so they'd defeat themselves after they'd disposed of you, Bubo said. How? There were great masses of tentacles now, all of them writhing toward the gateway. I sneaked them out last night, Bubo said, and I switched the wands. I seemed to hear the odd sounds of a cat's laughter. It's so hard to tell when they're smiling. The old cat hadn't been telling me to fetch a stick. Carpe baculum. Seize the wand. I sprang into the air, catching it in my teeth, twisting it out of Jack's grip. I could see the astonished expression on his face as I did so. A terrible wind began to blow past us. I heard the vicar cry, No! Tekla sprang from his shoulders, wings beating. Turning my head, I saw that the gateway was closing. There followed a roar Growler would have been proud of as Larry Larry leaped at the vicar. They rolled upon the ground, passing right over the count, knocking the icon from his breast. Then the mighty wind caught them, and they were carried toward the closing gateway and on through it. Jill looked puzzled as she continued to wield the closing wand, hair and cloak streaming forward. Jack had braced himself, then his arm moved, hand dipping into the satchel and out, emerging quickly, casting the wine bottle of Slitherers into the gateway to gunk it up. He grinned at me. Any port in a storm, he observed. I felt the wind pushing me forward. Nightwind was trying to get behind a rock. Then the experiment man came up and halted before us, and the pressure was suddenly eased. The count? he asked. Had Greymalk sent him after our ally? The man on the ground, I replied. Take him away. He continued past us, swaying but holding his own against the wind. He stooped and caught hold of the supine figure, raised it in his arms. I glanced at the gateway. It had already grown somewhat darker. The fire, scattered, flamed at a dozen small points, glowed from as many more. A few of these faded and winked out as I watched. Jill stared at the wand that she held, and I could read the realization coming into her expression. I heard Greymalk's voice from the shadows. Come on, she called. Let's get the hell out of here. Bubo had already ducked back out of sight into Jack's pocket as we moved to take her advice. A single note, as of a crushed crystal goblet, filled the air. The stone was blank again. Abruptly, the wind ceased. The voices had already died away. We made our way northward across the slope. Overhead, the moon seemed enormous. Let's go, Greymalk urged as we came up beside her. And she was right. The hilltop would remain dangerous until dawn. 
I turned and looked back in time to see the experiment man start down the southern slope, carrying the count. Hi, cat, I said. I'll buy you that drink yet. Hi, dog, she said. I think I'll let you. Jack and Jill went down the hill. Gray and I ran after. <laughs>